Good evening. Protests grow in Myanmar with dozens dead as the military makes more violent threats. The United States Senate begins debate on the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Act, a state of emergency at the Capitol, and a border tragedy. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. The United Nations reports Wednesday was the bloodiest day in Myanmar since the military takeover. That's when the generals ousted the elected government of leader Aung San Suu Kyi. At least 24, pardon me, at least 54 civilians, mostly peaceful protesters, are confirmed to have been killed by police and soldiers since February 1st, including 38 who died Wednesday. Videos posted on social media uh, show police brutality, uh, police beating protesters and summarily executing others in the streets. The military has also been posting videos on TikTok threatening protesters with death. Videos showed armed police stopping an ambulance at gunpoint and forcing three medics out before attacking them. Six cops can be seen smashing the medics over the head with rifle butts, beating them with truncheons, kicking them in the head and blasting out the windows of their ambulance with shotguns. In another part of the country, also known as Burma, fighter jets buzz civilian areas. At least 1,200 have been arrested, including journalists working for the Associated Press. A United Nations spokesperson condemned the targeting of journalists by security forces. The video is extremely disturbing to anyone who, who sees it. I mean, I've, I've seen it. Uh, the Secretary General and the, the UN family has repeatedly called on every country to allow journalists to do their job free of harassment, free of arrest, free of violence. I think we have seen in Myanmar in recent days harassment, arrests, and physical attacks on journalists. Those must cease. And those journalists who have detained, along with the others, other people who have been arrested, should also be freed. U.N. spokesperson Stéphane Dujaric, a human rights activist and former special rapporteur to Myanmar, is Yang He Lee. She says the country is being terrorized by its own military. The behaviors, the actions of this so-called military uh, are uh, terrorist-like behaviors. They have snipers and, and, and on high-rise high buildings or on tall buildings. They are aiming at and shooting at the civilian population, UN, they should really be ashamed of what they've done or not done. You know, they haven't been adhering to the UN Charter to protect uh, and to uh, restore or to maintain or to secure peace and order. The Security Council have really not done its job. And that's Yang He Lee, the former special rapporteur, to Myanmar. She is um, uh, uh, living in that region at this time. Women have been on the front lines of the struggle for democracy in Myanmar, despite the danger and the struggle to return the country's female leader, ousted by an army that's entirely made up of men. It's become called a sexist coup. My Kyle Sin, also known as Angel, who was 18, was buried today, shot in the head by a sniper yesterday as she wore a T-shirt with a simple message, everything will be okay. She's a hero for our country, said a friend at the funeral. The executive director for Nonviolence International is Michael Beer. 
He's traveled to Myanmar many times. The people of Myanmar came out on the streets today again after 38 people were killed yesterday. Unbelievable courage and commitment. They're showing up all over the country in the streets. Men, women, people of all ages. It's very inspiring to see, and it's very disgusting to see the violence and the repression by the security voice, uh, forces. Yesterday, one of the most difficult things to watch was police pulling four ambulance medics out of their van or ambulance and then beating them uh, brutally with their guns and kicking them. And we heard that perhaps one of them died. And this went on and on and on in front of the cameras. So their brutality against the civilians, the nonviolent civilians, unarmed civilians is disgusting and the people are rising up. Worldwide, we've seen the UN speak up as best it can. Uh, we want it to do more. The United States has spoken up reasonably well, but we need the whole world to speak up and we need the citizens of the world to speak up because this brutality is encouraging others around the world. These militaries and these dictators, they see what other countries can get away with and see if they can do it in their country. We are seeing an authoritarian drift in the world and we need to stand up to authoritarianism wherever it may be. A unique aspect of this uprising are the role of women. One of the reasons that this is happening is it's a sexist coup. The military, which is all men, are envious and jealous of the political leader of the country, who's the overwhelmingly popular leader of the country, Do Aung San Suu Kyi, and they're jealous that they don't have power. First protesters on the streets were two young women about five days after the coup. Their leadership in all over the country and in the diaspora is terrific, is one of the reasons why so far they've been able to maintain some momentum. We know from research on nonviolent struggles that maximizing participation is one of the factors that leads to success. And that means that when women who are half and girls who are half the population are participating in nonviolent struggles, there's a much greater likelihood that they're going to succeed. Mm-hmm. What uh, just some background, the nonviolent means the sort of Martin Luther King, Gandhi. Why is that? Based on their experience, they've had 70 years of civil war on the periphery of their country. And most of the people realize that they don't want civil war anymore. And that also the military is has all the guns and they're not going to be able to defeat the military with Molotov cocktails or citizen weaponry they might have. Most of the successes around the world against dictators and authoritarian regimes has been by nonviolent struggle as opposed to armed struggle. It's both tactical or a strategic decision, as well as one in which they don't want to kill their fellow Burmese to achieve the, the freedom and the democracy and the federal democracy that they want in that country. They do have a Buddhist heritage, many of them. Buddhism does have strong principles that are based in non-harm, and uh, that is influencing some of the citizens of that country, too. And last thing, what can we do? As citizens, we can boycott companies 
that are doing business with Burma. We can pressure our government to have targeted sanctions on the military, not on the people, but on the military and their military corporations. We can push the United States to engage in a multilateral manner, not in a unilateral manner, get the world to work together to solve lots of problems and not get into this geostrategic contest with Russia and China and all this silliness that is meant for weapons and arms sales. We need multilateralism working together with all of these partners to try to solve problems. And that was Michael Beer. He's the director of Nonviolence International, and he's traveled to Myanmar, Myanmar, pardon me, many times. Women have the most to lose from the general's resumption of full authority. In the general's worldview, women are often considered weak and impure. Traditional religious hierarchies in this predominantly Buddhist nation also place women at the feet of men. And in related news, Myanmar's military rulers attempted to move about $1 billion held at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York days after seizing power on February 1st, prompting United States officials to put a freeze on the funds. The transaction in the name of the Central Bank of Myanmar was first blocked by Fed safeguards. U.S. government officials then stalled on approving the transfer until an executive order issued by President Joe Biden gave them legal authority to block it indefinitely. The United States, Canada, the European Union and Britain have all issued fresh sanctions following the coup and the army's subsequent deadly crackdown. And in Washington, Justice Amy Coney Barrett on Thursday authored her first ruling since joining the United States Supreme Court in October. Her decision, with the concurrence of one liberal justice, handed environmentalists a loss, thwarting the Sierra Club's bid to obtain documents concerning a regulation finalized in 2014 relating to power plants. The majority decision upheld earlier rulings that preliminary discussions of new regulations were exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. And the United States Senate voted today to begin debating a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill. The vote came after Democrats made 11th hour changes to ensure they could pull the, legisl- uh, the legislation through the divided chamber. The vote to begin the debate was 51 to 50, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tiebreaker. Democrats were hoping for Senate approval of the package before next week in time for the House to sign off and get the measure to Biden quickly. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Republican Ron Johnson followed through on his threat to force a reading of the 628-page bill in its entirety. Typically, Senators skip having the clerk read the entire bill out loud, especially when the legislation is hundreds of pages. In a tweet, Johnson estimated the full reading of the bill could take 10 hours. Senate Democratic leaders estimated it'll take four to five hours. The Senate clerk began reading the bill at 3.21 p.m. Eastern. The clerks have been taking turns reading the bill out loud. The delay is a challenge. Democrats have said they want the uh, the relief bill signed before the last round of emergency jobless benefits run dry on March 14th. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer addressed the delay on the Senate floor. We are delighted that the senator from Wisconsin wants to give the American people another opportunity to hear what's in the American Rescue Plan. We Democrats want America to hear what's in the plan. And if the senator from Wisconsin wants to read it, let everybody listen, because it has overwhelming support. Once the American people have heard all over again about the provisions that make this bill so popular, about the support that is going to lift the country out of the crisis, 
provide millions of vaccines in people's arms and set it on a path to strong recovery, the Senate is going to move forward with the bill. No matter how long it takes, the Senate is going to stay in session to finish the bill this week. The American people deserve nothing less. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today on the House on the pardon me on the Senate floor, new provisions added to the bill by Democrats would new uh, would have the government cover the entire cost of health care for some workers who lose jobs up from 85 percent, boost spending for rural health care and capital projects, expand tax credits for student loans and startup companies and steer specific amounts uh, to smaller states. Tom Ferguson is Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the author of many books and articles. He says the $1.9 trillion package is a necessary bailout that will help the economy. Why is this so much more controversial? Bluntly, I'm sorry to say I think this actually would produce a lot of money for ordinary people. I agree with the folks who suggest that A lot of people are still really much in need. We live in a money-dominated political system, and you can get both parties pretty easily to agree to do something like let the Federal Reserve bail out the stock markets and help them along by providing a Treasury backstop, basically what they did last year. When you actually start providing real money to ordinary people, it's far more controversial. It's controversial in both parties. Both parties are money-driven to a very substantial extent, I'm sorry to say. Now, is this going to be a budget buster? No, I don't think so. You're still missing about 10 million jobs. That number comes from a piece yesterday by Claudia Sum on the Institute for New Economic Thinking website. The notion that you're going to have like rampant inflation because you're going to have too much money chasing too few goods, I think is ridiculous. You're a long way from full employment. You need a big spending boost. You should be able to do something for people besides the rich. Right now, we've got an economy in which very large numbers of ordinary people, especially if they're black or brown, have been left out or not able to work or they have to work and they're sick. You've got unemployment benefits running out in just a matter of days. And you've got lots of rich folks, mostly white folks, working at home who've been paid throughout this crisis pretty well and who are invested in the stock market. Most of the opposition to this bill is really about taxes, meaning this. It's quite clear to me that a lot of very wealthy folks don't want to be taxed. They know that they're probably... To the extent they spend more money on the rest of the population, they probably will move the administration to ask for a slightly higher tax on the rich. Frankly, I think that's what the issue is about. It's a sort of future tax rise issue. Normal spending politics in a real ugly way. Is this the end of Reaganomics, what we're seeing, Reaganomics coming crashing? Reaganomics ended back in the great financial crisis when the whole system fell apart back then. And it's not like it ever quite got back together again. It was pretty much Humpty Dumpty. And all the king's horses and all the king's men haven't quite put it together again. So the opposite Uh, of that, where they would go from there, would be to a more like FDR, New Deal type of response. That's exactly what they should do. All this is is really a bailout bill in the sense that we're just trying to get back to something like normal. Normal wasn't wonderful. When this thing hit, you were close to full employment. You were not there, although a lot of people were claiming we were. 
there were all these folks saying, oh, wages, are, we can't find workers, you know, but wages weren't rising. You'll know you're at real full employment when you see really rising wages. We have the problem that vast numbers of people can find work only at fairly miserable jobs, a dual economy. This bill won't solve that problem. It'll just get you back to normal. The whole question of changing the structure of work and investment in America so that ordinary people can participate in prosperity, that's going to have to be addressed. It'll have to be addressed by things like Green New Deal bills and things like that. You can't have rampant inflation without dramatically rising wages. Instead, there's at least 10 million jobs short, big unemployment. Tom Ferguson is Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the author of many books and articles. And in more Washington news, the Capitol Police have requested that members of the National Guard continue to provide security at the United States Capitol for another two months. Defense officials say the new proposal is being reviewed by the Pentagon. Today, March 4th, was rumored to be the date for another violent assault on the Capitol by white supremacists, QAnon supporters, and fans of the former president. Law enforcement was on high alert Thursday around the U.S. Capitol after intelligence uncovered a possible plot by a militia group to storm the building. Today's tension comes after hearings yesterday before the Senate Homeland Security Committee, where Major General William J. Walker, head of the D.C. National Guard, said the Secretary of Defense under President Trump made an unusual decision on January 6th during the Capitol invasion. So the memo was unusual in that I was it, re, it required me to seek authorization from the Secretary of the Army and the Secretary of Defense to essentially even protect my guardsmen. So no civil disturbance equipment could be authorized unless it was came from the Secretary of Defense. Now the Secretary of the Army, to his credit, did tell me that I could have force protection equipment with the guardsmen. So we did uh, have helmets, shin guards, vests, we did have that with us, but that came from the Secretary of the Army. The Secretary of Defense told me I needed his permission to, to escalate, to have that kind of protection. And that is Major General William J. Walker, head of the D.C. National Guard. The source of the beliefs animating the QAnon supporters and others who seem to be planning a March 4th repeat of January's mayhem at the Capitol is based on a misinterpretation of the reasons why the inauguration day of the president was switched from its original March 4th date to January 20th, the current date. That happened in 1933, but not for insidious reasons, because it didn't take as much time to get to Washington as it did in the 18th century. These misinterpretations of United States history may be rooted in a long-term lack of focus on history and social studies in American schools. In fact, the federal government is pushing for a quick return to high-stakes testing in English and math skills, ignoring social studies. Alan Singer is an educator at Hofstra University. He says if a subject is ignored, it will eventually disappear. The federal government wants to resume the high-stakes testing in ELA and math. Why? It's inexplicable. I mean, we have had a year of interrupted education for kids. New York City has thousands of kids who are now ghosts. They've disappeared. That's what we need to address, not high-stakes testing. The other problem is the kids who zoom in and zoom out. You know, they're 
technically there, but the reality is they're not. Why the federal government is doing this, it's inexplicable. States are told they can get waivers, they can opt out. It's a long process. The second issue is New York State Board of Regents is considering giving a math and a English regents in high schools, but not giving the other exams because the math and English regents will address the federal mandate. Well, the problem there is a problem that's been going on for quite some time. Once you move away from testing a subject, the subject ends up getting abandoned. New York used to have a fifth and eighth grade assessment in social studies. Well, now kids end up going to high school. They've never taken social studies or history at all. And the reason is that classes become directed at preparing kids for the subjects that are tested. So what you have in middle school, where technically they're studying social studies, really what they're doing is they're doing ELA prep. The first question is, why are we doing assessments at all now when the problems are so much greater? And the second question is, why are they abandoning the teaching of history and just working on skills? Can you try and answer that question for us? Is it easier to measure reading and math skills than to measure student understanding of more complex subjects like science and more complex subjects like history? The test prep industry and the assessment industry are pushing the easiest testing things rather than moving away from complex thinking. And we saw what happened on January 6th, the consequence of not teaching history, the consequence of not teaching citizenship, the consequence of not teaching critical thinking skills is you get people who follow Quinon and storm the Capitol. They have the military on red alert at the Capitol because of some strange QAnon interpretation of history, American history. People are not educated and that people are not thoughtful and that schools have now shifted to what's easily tested rather than complex ideas. So people have very simple ideas about American society. They want to teach patriotism rather than democratic participation. That's what social studies is about. And if we stop teaching it, we doom the country. This is interesting. 1943, when the United States was preparing to bring democracy to Western Europe, they gave a test to college students and they found fundamentally ignorant about American institutions. This has been a problem for a long time. We have a society that preaches democracy, yet we also have an educational system that doesn't prepare young people for participation in democracy. And that may well be because if young people are prepared to participate in democracy, they may challenge the way our society is organized. Alice Singer is an educator at Hofstra University. And authorities are investigating whether human smuggling was involved after a crash Tuesday involving an SUV packed with 25 people and a tractor trailer that left 13 people dead and bodies strewn across a roadway near the U.S.-Mexico border. Most of the dead were Mexican immigrants. When police arrived, some of the passengers were trying to crawl out of the crumpled 1997 Ford Expedition, while others were wandering around the fields. The rig's front end was pushed into the SUV's left side, and two empty trailers were jackknifed behind it. A Mexican consulate official spoke with reporters. 
been able to identify 10 people of uh, Mexican origin who were deceased in the accident. So far, we've been able to contact six of the uh, of the 10 families of the of the deceased people, and uh, we provided them information about uh, the accident. Some of the families are in Mexico. Some of them are in the United States. We will help them, of course, with the process of the transfer of remains to Mexico. The consulate is always part of that um, process. And the, uh, that's a Mexican consulate official speaking earlier today. Special agents from Homeland Security Investigation San Diego responded in a statement. The agency said they have initiated a human smuggling investigation, adding that other details were not being released. A spokesperson for Customs and Border Protection said agents were not pursuing the SUV at the time of the crash, which was initially rumored. The immigration status of the passengers was unknown at this time. There have been several incidents where vehicles that were being chased by Border Protection have crashed. Yesterday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki addressed continuing questions over the administration's plans for unaccompanied minors picked up at the border by reopening a Texas shelter initiated by former President Trump. About 300 minors a day have been arriving at the border. Psaki said the minors will not stay long. When migrants are placed in alternatives to detention, our policy is for COVID-19 testing to be done at the state and local level and with the help of NGOs and local governments. And that certainly is something that our policy is, is for ha- to have that be concluded before they are even moved to go stay with family members or others they may know while their cases are being adjudicated. And that's some of the news for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. For, from New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>